It's a dog-eat-dog world. Well, it's also a dog-eat-full-apple-scat-roadkill kind of world, too. For all but the autotrophs, getting a meal can be a real hassle, mostly because your prey has a nasty little habit of trying to avoid getting eaten. But as they say, there's no such thing as a free lunch. Predators have to earn their sustenance. They must be ever vigilant in sussing out chinks in the armor, vulnerabilities in the ramparts, and flaws in the camouflage of their prey. We know why animals must eat, for all organisms need to eat to survive. So we're left with those other evolutionary questions to answer. Who, what, when, where, and how to eat. In this episode, we look at some of the answers to these questions. In the next episode, we'll throw a wrench in their plans and ask prey just what they're going to do about it. For this is the single acorn. But first, a word from our sponsor. Let's face it, most of us don't have access to high-tech CIA equipment. And as much as we'd like to believe someone by just looking in their eyes, well, that we're not lying, we don't have too much pride to admit we've been burned before. That's why we've created a portable, low-cost lie detector that you can use in any situation. A job interview, a first date, determining who the heck microwaved fish in the shared kitchen. No gimmicks, no hidden costs, no special Simba, listen, just plain lion detection. We're not lion lie detectors. Remember who you are. Well, hey there, listeners, and welcome to the Single Acorn Podcast. I am Professor Yuigi. And I am here with Glenn, who uh, is a foreman at Volterra Earthworks. Hi, everyone. Yeah, so you want to tell us a, a bit about your work at Volterra? Yeah, Volterra, as you might can tell from the name, comes from volt, uh, the electrical term. So we use electricity, high-voltage electricity, to um, to make garden soil. So we just basically, we've um, <clears throat> got a little... I guess you'd call it illegal, but like jack off the power line and we just zap it into the ground and it just um, it adds a lot of nutrients, makes rich soil. It's a little known process. Most of the available nitrogen for organisms actually comes from lightning bolts. From lightning, so, right? Yeah, it fixes yeah. nitrogen. Fixes a lot of problems. There's really nothing lightning can't fix, in my opinion. Yeah, so hence your, your amazing work at Volterra. At Volterra, yeah. Thanks for giving a shout out to that. <laughs> yeah, of course. Uh, not our sponsor for the week, but maybe in a future episode, you guys can sponsor us. Yeah, well, you know, we're on a budget. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, hopefully your your expertise working with uh, yeah energy and soil remediation can help us with our discussion of uh, predators and prey. So we've been talking about symbiosis in general, and then each episode uh, for this season, we're talking about a specific type of symbiosis. So a type of interaction between two different organisms that has evolved through time. Through time. So when we talk about predation, we're going to focus this episode on the predator side of things. And then next episode, we'll focus on prey and how they deal with predation. Um, I just want to start real quick. Can, because... I, can I interject really quickly? Yeah, go for it. Take. Are there any predators that you know of that use lightning as a, as in a form of attack? I guess there's electric eels, right? It's not really lightning. Yeah, so electricity. We're just looking for a mascot type thing with Volterra. If you're associating lightning with um, uh, predation, then, mm -hmm. there, or sorry, if you're associating like lightning with fire, uh, there are uh, different types of hawks in Australia that will use fire. They'll actively spread fire by picking up burning branches and flying to another uh, area and starting a fire. There it you go. Yeah, at the, the front of the flames are all of these little marsupials that are running for cover. And so then the hawks can just start picking them off. Maybe so, one of those That's hawks, a pretty cool one. Yeah, carrying like an eel in one talon, an electric eel, and then a burning branch in another and just like swooping down over a little marsupial, a cute little marsupial. Yeah, that'd be awesome. There you go. There's your mask. Thanks for that idea. Okay, go ahead with your plan now. I just need well, to get that, that out I mean, of the way. It makes sense. There's something really compelling and powerful and gripping about a predator people are just drawn to yeah, literally and... gripping in this, case. <laughs> yeah, in this actually i've got a story that <laughs> i wanted to share about predators oh, gripping I, I love that so i had this experience uh this was a bunch of years ago i was uh at this at running this education program with a few other naturalists and we were standing up on top of this knoll and we we're looking down uh i guess to the south uh of the knoll and there were these two flickers that were on the ground. Those are types of woodpeckers. Uh, this is out in the east. So these are the yellow shafted flickers out west. There's red shafted flickers. 
Um, but they are common feeders on the ground. So they were hunting for ants. And uh, so they're feeding on this open lawn. And we had this really great look at them. We all had our binoculars on them. And then all of a sudden, someone's like, hey, look at that. And so we all turned and followed his gaze. And we looked to the north. And on the other side of this hill, flying in was uh, a sharp-shinned hawk. So we all got really excited because we get to see this predator. Uh, yeah. And I guess the flickers are also predators, but they're eating insects, which is maybe not as cool as... It's not quite as a... badass as we say no. uh, scientifically. Okay. Yeah, as a predator that's eating another vertebrate. So we're looking at this sharp-shinned hawk, and it's flying towards us but from its angle because it was a little bit lower it couldn't see the flickers and then as it came over towards the crest of this knoll it then was able to see the flickers and it just sort of tucked its wings in got a little bit more aerodynamic and then started to swoop down and just knife straight at the flickers and it hit one of them and grabbed it and we were all just like (gasps) like a collective gasp and then And so it hit it and grabbed it with its talons, and then it flew off. And so uh, it wound up going into this. It was was, uh, right on these cliffs overlooking Lake Champlain. This is down in Shelburne, Vermont. So the hawk flew into this little patch of cedars right on the cliff edge. So we all sort of silently tried to track up uh, to where we could see the sharp-shinned hawk because we wanted to be able to see it eating. Eating its prey. Yeah, the gory aftermath. Some gruesome voyeurism going on there. (laughs) In the name of science. In the name of science. And so we're all stocking up and uh, there were probably four of us. And we there was this little clearing in the cedars and the sharp shinned hawk was in the clearing feeding on the flicker. Well, it wasn't feeding yet. So it was actually plucking the feathers uh, from the flicker, but the flicker hadn't died yet. Oh, my God. There's something like really Sounds terrible. Wrong. It was like, yeah. Th- so the every now and then the the flicker would, you know, throw all of its energy reserves into trying to escape the talons of the sharp-shinned hawk. And one of the incredible things is, uh, so birds, which you know they have to sleep like the rest of us, and when they go to sleep, they'll uh, often sleep on branches, which could be, you know, really dangerous if you're high up in a tree and you go to sleep and then you fall out of the tree. So what they'll do, and if you have chickens, you can, you know, look at your chickens doing this. When they go to sleep, they crouch down. And when they crouch down, the tendons that are in their leg contract and they squeeze the talons. So it's not like a muscular thing. It's just a mechanical thing. Mechanical, just automatically, auto squeeze. Even if you take a dead bird and you bend its legs, its talons will contract and grip on. Do you think anyone does that? Like has a bunch of dead birds roosting like in the trees outside their yard, like mechanically locked onto their limbs. Uh, like as a, cause I think that's reportable thing. Or yeah, I guess it could be art. <laughs> seems, seems slightly wrong, but I, I don't know. I'm, I should not be judgmental. Just wondering if it's a thing. I mean, I, well, I was curious initially if you were asking if people had like a bunch of chickens that had died and they just left them dead on the branches. <laughs> <laughs> to get later it's like a a larder hmm. maybe you have a branch in a refrigerator and then you let them clamp on there yeah you could do that and then yeah you would just have little chicken popsicles i'm gonna copyright this this is a great idea maybe so when volterra, volterra you know uh, expand expand <laughs> yeah. into poultry yeah um voltry <laughs> nice nice take so the flicker uh, would, you know, make these last ditch efforts to escape the talons of the sharp shin hawk. And every time it would do that, the uh, sharp shin hawk would just crouch down. And it was this really cool thing because it would, as it would crouch down, its talons would it squeeze it know, more. Yeah, tighten its grip. And so it was just like, it was pretty horrific to The to crouch watch, of but, doom. Yeah. Yeah. But there was something really from a more academic or naturalist perspective that was really amazing to be able to see this organism that had evolved all of these different features that allowed it to successfully catch and then uh, successfully dispatch this animal and then be able to feed on it. Harvest. Harvest, as they call it, when they <laughs> want to make it sound nice. Yeah, the harvest is the, the delicate yeah <laughs> thing to appeal to non-hunters. <laughs> That's a gripping story. As you <sighs> Thank said. you. Yeah, pun intended. So 
what I was hoping that we could do uh, today is just focus on the predator side of things and look at some of the different ways that predators have evolved different morphological features and behaviors over time in order to successfully capture their prey. And then again, in the next episode, we can look at how prey, which don't want to get eaten, uh, all of the different techniques and adaptations they have for avoiding predation. By the way, do you know where the word predator comes from? I just looked this up. I was totally listening to you also as I was looking at it because I can multitask. Yeah, I'm trying to think. So pre would be before, but it, it, well, ater just means like a thing that does something. So it's probably preda is probably the root. Mm-hmm. Preda. But so it probably doesn't have anything to do with pre. Initially, I was like pre-date. So what you do, do before. Before a date, <laughs> like, and, like you get ready and go kill things to get in the yeah, mood. Yeah, go kill things. Things. Make, make um, yourself ready for sexy time yeah um i don't know yeah i don't recommend that but well i don't know either because this is a i'm gonna say for our listeners this would be a a seed that i'm planting that they can go plant plant for themselves and study more raise into a full-fledged thought but it looks like it comes from the latin predate which is seizing as plunder it comes from plundering like pirates huh. the original predators all right yeah interesting so the the root itself is not derived from something that's like a maybe proto Indo European word. Seems, seems like a Latin word, oh, Latin. predator, which is a plunderer. Okay. So it's I think originally a human human term. All right. So we have all these predators plundering the natural world for resources. <laughs> when we talk about predators, we're going to talk about uh, mostly carnivores. So. Uh, herbivory falls under the category of predation so you might not think of predators as things that uh, predate upon plants um, but that is something a a behavior that would fall under the category of predation for this symbiosis Um, so we'll talk about herbivores but we'll mostly focus on carnivores carnivores. Um, yeah and it's a spectrum so whenever you try to define clean borders around a behavior pattern or um, some s- category within science, it's almost impossible to do. So there are very, very, very few things that are strict carnivores that eat nothing but uh, the flesh of other organisms. Yeah. I had an uncle, I think, who would fit that. Uncle Tom. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. My uncle says if it flies, it dies. Uh, and <laughs> really? What, yeah, I do not want I... to fly on an airplane with him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah when i when i would uh in college uh i went over to his house for for dinner and i i think this was maybe right after i had gone uh vegetarian and he was asking he's like wait so so you eat you only eat salad <laughs> I, was, I was like I, I don't know i mean i eat other things he's like wait but salad's not food that's that's food's food uh, <laughs> that was great um, so there's definitely a spectrum from herbivore to carnivore, and there are things that are that we think of as straight carnivores, so fishers, which are weasels, and yes. are vicious predators. They're vicious. They're, they're facultative omnivores, so if they are, you know, running through an orchard and there are apples on the ground, they'll eat apples. Maybe 90 plus percent of their diet is coming from killing other animals. And then if you look at a snowshoe hare, which we think of as snowshoe hares as being herbivores, snowshoe hares get about 30% of their diet in the winter from scavenge carcasses. So huh. including other snowshoe Other scavengers. Oh, I was about to ask. Brutal. Yeah. Sad story. Cute little bunnies. Does anyone, by the way, describe plants as predate predators of light? Yeah, well, I mean, there are there are plants that are like carnivorous plants. There's carnivorous plants, right, but I mean... yeah. And then they're saprophytic plants. And so carnivorous plants are things like pitcher plants or sundews that are capturing prey and then slowly digesting them, uh, primarily for nitrogen. And then saprophytic plants are um, like pine drops or Indian ghost pipe or beech drops. Those are plants that they don't have any photosynthetic capacity and they are parasites on uh, the roots of plants. So they're stealing away sugars. Mm. At least beech drops is. I think Indian ghost pipe is actually, a, a, if you're a saprivore, you're a decomposer. It's like every day is Halloween for them. They're just trick-or-treating, getting sugar. 
Yeah, exactly. Staying on the sugar buzz. Yeah. Maybe I'm going to dress my son up as a saprophytic plant. You know, he Indian, gets to choose. Indian ghost pie could, would be good. That's a cool one. He gets to choose his own costume, but maybe I'll I'll be that. Some would say I'm too old for Halloween costumes. But no, I say never. Never, never. In fact, one of the reasons I do this podcast is to get more costume ideas. Yeah. So keep it coming. <laughs> yeah, I'm excited yeah, well, about today. I mean, we're talking about symbiosis, uh, so... You yeah. know, they come in pairs, so you've always got exactly partner. family costume. Yeah, yeah. All right. So, uh, in terms of framing our conversation around predators, uh, we'll break it down into sort of the investigative journalist questions. We're not going to answer the question why do things eat? They eat to get energy. Um, so, I guess we are going to answer it. Just did you just did? Yeah, you said you weren't going to, and then you did it. Yeah, you're over delivering. Uh, forgive over, me. Under promise. No, that's fine. It's good. So the questions that we will answer are the who questions, what questions, where, when, and how. And these are evolutionary strategies that are available to predators. So uh, you get to sort of cobble together an organism based on your answers to these different questions. So we, Whoa, they can cobble together an organism. It would be Frankensteinian. No, costume. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Let's do it. Let's do this. So, so for hunting, you can hunt by yourself. Um, so name a solitary predator um well it sounds like the cooper's hawk you already mentioned tends to work alone yeah uh, sharp shinned, but yeah sharp shinned, right it's bigger cousin the cooper might also work alone um what would be a classic working alone animal working solo as a predator maybe an alligator i don't really think of them hunting in packs crocodiles maybe they do though and that's kind of horrifying yeah they're oh. I, w- I don't know the specifics of it. I'll link to it in the show notes. But there, were, I I saw a story a while ago about alligators uh, pack hunting, which would be really terrifying. But primarily, they are a solitary predator. Okay. All right. Well, give me eighty percent on that. Yeah. So if you're if you're a solitary predator, there are constraints on what you can go after. So typically, things that are hunting by themselves. So think of like cats are solitary predators generally i mean the lions lions hunt in a lions sometimes. are the big exception and lions can go after things that are bigger than themselves but if you're a solitary predator typically you're going after something that is uh smaller than your body size if you're solitary also uh you're primarily so if you're not solitary obviously you are hunting in a pack um so there's sort of two ways of pack hunting. One is if all of the bodies of the individuals that are hunting are separate, which seems dumb to say because obviously, <laughs> right? If you're thinking and the other about... way, they fuse together in some sort of giant glob, I believe that's a scientific term. What is the other way? You well, piqued yeah, my okay, interest. So, so social hunting would be like a... Wolves. Maybe wolves? Yeah, wolves would be a, a perfect example. Chimpanzees will sometimes hunt in large, terrifying uh, packs. And then army ants, um, and there are a bunch of different types of army ants, but these are ants that don't have a nest, so they're sort of nomadic and will roam around uh, in large numbers of up to thousands and will kill prey. One of my favorite examples that I wish was true, but I I remember hearing about this and then trying to find research of it. I couldn't find this, but grasshopper mice, which are mice, uh, mm-hmm. so they're true mice, uh, they are predators and they'll go after scorpions. They live out in the desert out west and uh, they'll go after uh, scorpions. But I remember this researcher that I worked for told me that one of them would sort of dance in front of the scorpion and then the like other a one scorpion would scorpion charmer sneak up behind? Yeah, and disable the tail. Um, that's, so that's the way my son up... and I do it when we're pickpocketing people. <laughs> yeah, grasshopper mice are amazing. Uh, everyone should look up videos of them howling. So oh, I've seen this... one of those howling at night. Cool. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, that is worth like basically inaudible to humans. More than but... a thousand words. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Halloween costume. I guess another way uh, or another term for glob is just saying colonial. So okay. do you know any colonial species? So this is one that. It might look like a single organism, but if you broke it down into smaller pieces, those pieces would the whole organ or the whole structure wouldn't die. Like coral, the mighty hunting coral, a colonial yeah, exactly. structure. Yeah, some jellyfish are they some colonial? I think they're single. Yeah, yeah m- most of them are single, but like the man o' war is a colonial organism. Ah. So it's made out of tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of uh 
small units, so often single-celled units that aggregate into one coherent macro organism or aren't we in a sense oh because they can live on their own the single cell units because we're a glob of single cells in some sense they can't survive on their own yeah so so we are and the cool thing is that our cells all differentiate and have different functions um they're all genetically identical identical um with uh colonial organisms they're often genetical or genetically identical because they're just reproducing by asexual uh, reproduction, but they can be made of aggregates of genetically diverse uh, individuals. Wow. Um, what are some other examples of the globs, the colonial globs? So the the original animal would have been colonial. You can think of like a sort of a precursor to animals would be uh, an amoeba or a dinoflagellate, one of these single-celled organisms that has a little whip tail. So not mm-hmm. an amoeba, the but flagellate. a dino. Yeah, and so they have um, these little whip tails. So if you put a bunch of these little whip tails together and you had all of the whips on the inside and you made that uh, into a big structure that was a tube that was, you know, hollow and had entrances and an exit on the top, then all those whips could start whipping around and create this current that would flow water through the tube and help you as filter the water things. came in. Yeah, exactly. It would bring in all these food particles. Uh, and so these are the original animals that were these aggregates of essentially single-celled organisms, uh, and we call them. Do you know the name? Whip filters, filtering whips, um, yeah. whip holes, <laughs> whipples, uh, whipples, whipper whipple. Yeah, whipper. <laughs> that's what whipper wheels are. <laughs> exactly. I gotta be careful what I say. That's not true. Uh, sponges. Sponges. Yeah, so sponges are SpongeBob. the most primitive form of uh, of animals. They're all colonial organisms. So they might not be genetically identical. Though. Yeah. So that sort of covers the broad strokes of uh, who hunts. Um, so then the next question is, and we've covered this a little bit, but uh, answering the question of like, well, okay, now that you know how you're or who you're going to be hunting with, uh, you got to figure out what are you going to be eating, and so. We'll talk maybe in a future season about food webs and uh, looking at energy transfer between those, but um, this idea of trophic levels. So at the base of every ecosystem are the producers, which are photosynthetic organisms. The hunters of light, as I call them. The hunters of light, right? The lazy (laughs) hunters uh, who just sit around on their couches all day soaking up the sun. No, they have to take, you know, they got to move towards the sun, rotate. That's true. I guess there's a little bit away from it if it's too hot. So that's the first uh, trophic level. So if you're eating at the first trophic level, so you're eating plants or photosynthetic organisms, you're what's called a primary consumer. Is that also second trophic level? That's the second trophic level. So producers are the first trophic level, consumers the second one, and the second trophic level is made up of primary consumers. And then if you're eating above that, you're a secondary consumer, and then above that, you're a tertiary, and so on. The advantage of eating lower on the food web or uh, on the food web or on the, at a lower trophic level is that there's going to be more more biomass available at that level. So there are more producers than there are primary consumers. There are more primary consumers than there are secondary consumers. And so that's again what we talked about at the beginning, where there are far fewer hawks than there are flickers, um, and there are far fewer flickers than there are ants, and so on. Do you have a sense of what the longest, you know, continuous chain from the primary trophic level that's going up and it has a predator and it has a predator and it has a predator? Yeah. And so on. So the ratio, like the ratio 15, is roughly 10 to 1. 10 to 1. For biomass. And there, again, there are exceptions. Like if you have, uh, like in the warm tropics, uh, you have extremely rapid turnover. So you have high... Uh, reproductive rates of photosynthetic organisms, plankton, in the water. And those get gobbled up almost instantly by fish, but then the plankton is constantly replenishing itself. So there are very few plankton with high reproductive rates. And then there are a lot more fish, and then there are even more predatory fish. So you get these sort of inverted food pyramids. Um, It doesn't... Because it's not super clear, like you might have a, a flicker that's eating an ant that is uh, maybe a scavenger or an ant that is eating a fungus or an ant that's eating 
uh, seeds. Other ants. And so whatever ant the flicker is eating might change its position on the trophic level. Um, and so it's it's kind of confusing. Uh, trophic levels or food, food pyramids don't really exist. They're more like these bizarre so idealized abstractions. I see. But it's probably no more than like five or maybe six levels of consumers. Uh. Um, so seven trophic levels. If you have a trophic level that's built up of um, cold-blooded species uh, or uh, ectotherms, things that their body temperature Solar is power. dependent on yeah, the ambient temperature, they are wasting far less energy on maintaining their body temperature. And so their food webs can sustain a much higher ratio. So with uh, warm-blooded things like mammals and birds... The ratio is like 10 to 1, um, or, or sorry, it's closer to, I think, like 20 to 1. But then with ectotherms, like uh, spiders or insects, reptiles, it's turtles, more like 10 snapping to 1. Turtle. I see. I kind of just talked about this with trophic levels of how confusing they are because a flicker or um, a cooper's hawk might be somewhat of a generalist. And so you can generalize your predation uh, on a whole bunch of different things. And then it's, and we've talked about this in previous episodes, if you're a generalist, then it's a lot easier to just sort of switch from one food source to the other if one food source winds up drying up. Whereas if you're a specialist, you can be really good at capturing the type of prey that you're going after. But if that prey, you know, the population crashes, then your population is going to crash as well. So if you're a specialist, do they tend to not be too, you know, they can't be too good. You can't eat all <laughs> yeah. the prey. That's the problem with uh, invasive species is that they can be extraordinarily efficient at decimating uh, native populations of different organisms. And then they can basically lead to their own demise in an area if they're too efficient at killing. But after they've kind of desertified yeah. the place. Or yeah. Killed and off some species. We talked about parasites in the last episode. Uh, and parasites are one of the great regulating factors of predators. And so parasites decrease the the success and the efficiency, the overall efficiency of predators and give prey, which also have their own parasites, um, but can give prey a competitive advantage. Invasive species, which come to a new location and don't have the same predator or parasite load, they are at a distinct advantage. advantage against their prey. Yeah, because they're not dealing with parasites or illness or anything like that. But if, if predators and prey, if they co-evolve, then as fast as a predator can evolve, they tend to be larger, they tend to have longer lifespans. And so the prey, which can reproduce much quicker, they have more chance to evolve capacity to escape cope with the, the struggles of a predator eating their yeah parts of their population and does it tend to be i guess the stereotype you hear is that predators will prey on the you know the easiest prey to get of a say they're predating a certain species so the ones that are sick or old or maybe have parasites they'll tend to weed those out and then it makes the prey population sort of stronger in a sense because the healthy ones survive and reproduce yes yeah, definitely um and this is something that's really interesting because if you look at the behavior patterns of uh, predators that are hunting for food, they are basically the inverse of predators that are hunting for sport. Um, and so uh, humans, essentially. Right. So we're bad so predators. You, we're terrible yeah. predators. Um, but we're really efficient. So we go for the biggest and healthiest. Okay, we're good predators. Yeah, so there have been studies on um, like bighorn sheep and uh, doll sheep out west where looking at the average body size of males and the average size of the, the horns, uh, and those have steadily decreased over time in response to the uh, predation by humans. Of, humans. We're making yeah, everything the large small. Mm. So, yeah. Sad story. Yeah, we're making everything really tiny. Um, Although cuter. I would say we're making things cuter would be one way to spin it. It's true. My dog is definitely a testament to that. <laughs> See, <laughs> Thank you, you ancestors. <laughs> it all so worked out. you figured out who you're going to be hunting with. You figured out what you're going to be eating. And then the next thing, and this might be tied in with what you're eating, but you need to figure out where you're going to be feeding or where you're feeding might be different from where you're hunting. 
Um, but you need to figure out what kind of an environment you're going to be procuring food in. So the two general categories might be uh, an aquatic environment or a terrestrial environment. And so within those are a bunch of different niches or micro habitats that will influence the way in which you're hunting. So, um, for example, I've been obsessed with snorkeling and I've been snorkeling in the Winooski River right next to my house. I was just down there the other day. And uh, this guy was uh, yelling at me. He was like, uh, does it taste as bad as it looks? Because the water <laughs> looks pretty gross. Um, it's pretty, yeah, urban. In that, Did you answer that it? Area. Does it taste as bad as it looks? I think, <laughs> I think most water is pretty. Were you predating when you were out, out there snorkeling? Or you I was scavenging. Fish or? I was scavenging. I you ever tried to grab one with your teeth, you know, like bear style? No, salmon? I haven't. I actually... Uh, Be legendary. I was scavenging for uh, fishing lures. I just go and like collect fishing lures and then bring it back to my son. <laughs> he loves nice. it. He thinks that's what yeah. fishing is. <laughs> <laughs> we kind of do that when I fish with my son. If we catch anything, it's a treasure. Yeah, totally. One time we caught a, we caught three or four fish, but we caught this this kind of old shirt, like part of a shirt, <laughs> and it had a tag. The tag and the like collar of the shirt said Batman on it for some reason. Oh, so cool. we were like, yeah, we caught two crappie and a bass and a Batman. Nice. And so we're always hoping we'll catch another Batman. Yeah. Hasn't I happened yet. I found a credit yet. card today. I actually wrote to the person. Really? I looked him up on Facebook. Yeah, the credit card expired back in like 2009. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, if you're looking wow. for a credit card still, uh, yeah, don't worry about it. <laughs> I found it. That's uh, a huge relief for them. Yeah. 11 years of worry. Yeah. I wonder what the story behind that credit card was. Well, so you're, yeah, you're treasure hunting a bit. Yeah, but... Incidentally, I guess, while I was treasure hunting, one of the things that is really clear is so I was in these rapids and I was, you know, sort of hopping from uh, rock to rock and I was looking for for lamprey. And when I was in there, I was like, oh, my God, because it's, you know, the water's flowing pretty quickly and I'm like struggling to hold on to these rocks and they're all a little bit slippery and and it was exhausting to kind of just like pull myself along through the rapids. And then I would find these little eddy currents. Hang out in an eddy. You know, breathe out. And I would just feel so good. And I was like, why don't the lamprey just hang out over here? Yeah, because it just seems so much easier. They need the water flow, maybe. they Maybe they need the water flowing past them. I don't know. They don't really, right? They're waiting for a fish to slurp onto. Their their Latin name is uh, Petromyzon. And Petro means rock. And then Myzo means suck. And so they'll suck rock suckers. So I found this little cavity and there were three lamprey that were inside this little cavity and they, uh, they don't have like bony, they don't have bones and they, their mouths are really malleable. And so it sort of fit its mouth around a rock and suck it up and then spit it out outside of this little cavity. So you're sort of excavating this little chamber and so what they were doing is they're not in these calm little areas, but they were in this sort of intense rapids where all of these, you know, um, uh, where it can be dangerous for other predators to be hanging out and looking for um, fish because stuff is, you know, tumbling downstream. Well, pound, or it just takes a lot of energy to energy. be in the rapids. And so they're they're in this little niche and uh, they make it work for them. Right, um, and they're not there their whole lives, but and they um, made a little cav- a little cavity for themselves by, by sucking mining suck mining like they slip a rock and like spit it were, out. They were building a nest for reproduction. This is not the way I think. As just as a parent, you want to teach your child to build like a sandcastle, for example, or just a hole in the ground. If you're digging a hole to plant a you know plant your tomato plant, you don't want to slurp up the dirt and then spit it out. I don't think. I think it's the most efficient way. Maybe for a lamprey, though. Maybe you get lamprey to do that in your garden. Well, they don't have arms, and they don't have uh, fins. So uh, So they have limited... Yeah, yeah, okay. You're right. I take it back. For them, it works. Um, So the lamprey were, you know, utilizing one... Oh, and then there was actually uh, a little leech that was on another rock, and it was just... It suctioned onto the rock and was just holding on for dear life. And it looked like a... flapping a little bit? Totally. It looked like a uh, flag, you know, whipping in the wind. A flag? It was pretty. Maybe it was the mascot loud. flag of the lamprey. Yeah, um, like the little sucker. <laughs> yeah, they had just like, like how's the little sucker doing over there? Yeah, they had placed it right Still outside. Sucker. It's like their garden gnome. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, they can definitely relate to 
uh, being reviled. A similar by lifestyle. Humans. Yeah, and they're not. Yeah, they're kind of yeah. like bonded. So that way in also. the rapids, we had the uh, there was the leech, there were the lamprey, there were these other things called dace um, and some trout that were swimming along. And then as soon as I got into these little eddy currents, uh, it was pretty cool. The community of fish changed significantly. So over in these eddy currents, there were all these little pan fish. Um, so uh, they were pretty much just pumpkin two different seed. Yeah, there were pumpkin seeds and then bluegills. And so they were just hanging out in this little eddy current where they don't have to exert as much energy. And then also all of these, um, you know, tiny little pieces of detritus and um, tiny little insects are getting washed in and then sort of swirl around in this eddy. So they're still getting access to food that's washing in, but they don't have to fight these big currents. Their bodies are not nearly as streamlined as like a lamprey lamprey or a dace or trout. Um, and so they can have a different body shape and it doesn't matter as much because they're in a totally different aquatic environment. So for the panfish, you want to drop your lure or bait into the little eddies behind the rocks. But the, if you're going dace fishing, you want to like have your lure bounce down the rapids. Yeah. It sounds like that's my takeaway. Yeah. Or uh, yeah. leech fishing. Um, and dace are like a little bit more generalisty, uh, So they're not found exclusively in those rapids. But yeah. Can you fish for leeches? I, don't, I mean, I'm guessing you can't. And I'm guessing you wouldn't want to. Just a thought. Well, for bait, you just <laughs> use your feet. Yeah, you, I mean, you don't have to worry about finding your bait because you're the bait. It's efficient. Yeah, there. You know, people use medical purposes for medicine. Yeah, so you got to get them somehow. Yeah, yeah. You just have. I mean, that's the trick about fishing is you have to know what the organism is eating. But something and that provide it, it either that or something that looks them. like that. So you could have a mannequin. Maybe you could have a mannequin. That you just like let bob around in the pond and then it collects a bunch of leeches. Yeah. I wonder if they can detect like the, you know how sound just travels, like bass mm-hmm. travels in water. I wonder if they can like detect the, the pulsing you have to put, yeah, a heart and some blood in your mannequin. mannequin would have to that's have. the kind of stuff at Volterra we could probably, probably hook it up with some sort of mechanical yeah. <laughs> heart. Lightning powered. Yeah. So if you if you figured out your your question or your answers to where you're going to be hunting, then the next thing is when. And, you know, most organisms have to hunt year round. Um, so there are breaks. So some things will uh, go into hibernation when uh, when it's winter. And so they're not feeding then uh, some things will do what's called estivation. And estivation is a type of torpor, which a torpor is a type of uh, short-term hibernation. So things uh, go into estivation when it's super, super hot out. So with uh, the answers to the when question, we could think about it like uh, seasonality. So there are seasonal variations in temperature and food availability. And so that might influence yeah, whether you're active or not, whether you're hibernating or you're staying active. Um, but it could also change your diet. So I mentioned snowshoe hares are scavenging on uh, carcasses, but they're not doing that in the summer months when green vegetation is uh, available. They're doing it in the winter when they're browsing on woody twigs, which are harder to derive nutrients from. And so, yeah, they're supplementing that. With... I would imagine in a winter, a carcass is a little less dangerous to to chow on. It's more preserved by the cold. At least that's what I yeah. That's what I tell my son when we're harvesting frozen roadkill. Yeah, if you're an herbivore and you specialize in eating plants and then you come across a carcass that might be a little bit rancid, you don't have the digestive tract that can handle, yeah, nasty things in there. So you better chance of getting sick. So I hadn't thought about that, but yeah, that's probably another reason why it's like more of a winter month thing. If you're something that is a specialist, like a, say a tree swallow, and you specialize in flying insects, as soon as the flying insects disappear for the winter, You're doomed. you have to go you find some more. You go. Yeah, you have to go find some more. So that might affect both when you're feeding. So you are always feeding on flying insects. And so that would affect where you're feeding. So you're in the northern part of your range in the summer and then in the southern part. So specialists potentially migrate more often than non-specialists. They would, they would need to migrate slightly more often. If their prey's not there year-round. Yeah, that's an interesting question. I don't know the breakdown of 
specialist versus generalist in terms of migration, but it seems like that would make sense. I mean, most of the birds that stick around are are generalists, at least here they in have the, to be. the Northeast. Yeah. There are also daily variations uh, in activity patterns. And so, yeah, like uh, we'll talk about competition after predation. And one way of avoiding competition with things that are eating similar food items in similar ways. So flying squirrels and gray squirrels both hunt at a different time. But yeah, different times of day. So that can avoid competition. Um, Yeah. Uh, There are some things that are like straight nocturnal or straight diurnal, but then like short tailed shrews, they just take a bunch of different power naps throughout the course of the day. They're mostly active at night. But they'll feed throughout the course of the day. They have to eat every three uh, or four Lord. hours, or they'll starve to death. So they, yeah, they have to hunt all. Well, all this the is why here. my son and I usually fish at three a.m. because much less competition. Then it's kind of our niche. He doesn't love it. He's getting used to it. Yeah. Yeah. Do you you sneak in his room and like wake him up? Like, yeah, let's go, let's go. <laughs> I used to have to carry him while he's still sleeping, and then I'll kind of put a put a rod in his sleeping arms, and then if he gets a bite, I'll wake him up. Seems the kindest way. <laughs> I was fishing, uh, so there some some fish are act- so it's the same with fish as with squirrels. So there are some fish that are active at night. So brown bullhead are, are also called horned pout, and uh, so if you're fishing for them, you fish at night for them. And I got super excited about this last summer, and so I was out uh, fishing uh, on the Winooski River. This is downhole downstream from where I've been. The credit card place, credit and card rapids. I- yeah, credit card rapids. This is downstream from there. And so I was throwing uh, my line out and I got something, but it was mm. dark and I couldn't see and it felt really big. And I was like, oh my gosh, Snapping I was thinking turtle. maybe catfish or, or, uh, uh, cause right. catfish can be big. And it was like, yeah, it wasn't putting up fight, but was it, it was Batman? putting a lot of tension on it. And so I like tried to reel it in and it wasn't coming in, but it was clearly moving. So it wasn't just right. snagged on a, a tree. And so I start like reeling it in and I'm walking upstream and then all of a sudden I hear this like really loud slap. You caught a beaver? Uh, you caught against a beaver? The water. I caught a, I caught <laughs> a beaver. On a fishing pole? I felt so, I felt terrible, but I also was a little bit yeah, terrified. Yeah, it's going to bite like, you. Slap yeah, you in its tail. Um, so, or both? So I kind of like let up and I walked up and then... Uh, and then it wound up swimming upstream and slapping, and then it pulled on the line, and it it, uh, it it pulled free. It didn't snap off. Uh, the hook actually, yeah, pulled free. So it must have been just caught in its like fur or something. Wow. Um, but <laughs> yeah, so you got to be careful if you're fishing at at night. That's a good story. Don't catch beavers. Catching a beaver. I I have to say, snorkeling at night. I've done it a couple times in the ocean. I find it sort of terrifying. I imagine all these night predators coming yeah. out that. I just feel like defenseless. I feel particularly juicy and delicious yeah. at that time. <laughs> but maybe it wouldn't be like that here yeah. in the Winooski. Can't be that many things that would eat you. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. There's still something, yeah, creepy about snorkeling. Even during the day, if you go to a ledge and then you look down, you just depths, look into the dark depths. There. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, we're usually afraid for a reason. All right, so we've answered... Okay, so we've answered four of the five? Five of the... Four of the five. So the last one is just how are you going to go about hunting? There are sort of three different subcategories here, and we'll blow through them real quick. So the first is one, one of them is, blowing. By the way, how is your? Are there predators that hunt by blowing? Yeah, it's like knock it down, like the three little, like the wolf and the three little pigs. It's almost like spitting. It's a little bit like spitting hunting by spitting. It's a little like spitting. We talked about the the spitting fish that will spit water out of the. Um, what is it called? The it's called the, like the arrow fish or something like that. It'll spit water out of, or it'll spit from the water to insects that are on branches oh, over right. the water knock them down. and knock them down into the water and then eat them. Teague, I have to say, I mean, I <clears throat> I do admire how whatever ridiculous question I throw at you, you usually have an actual example of something that that's true. <laughs> My problem is I can never really remember the super specific, so I think I uh, yeah. Our listeners should definitely be fact-checking. Yeah, no, fact-checking is always welcome. So we'll spit through these, spit through this last three types. So uh, with body plans, uh, you can either be mm-hmm. stationary. That's my approach. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, 
And then, uh, so you could be stationary, and we mentioned a stationary predator before, which are the spongers, and they're just the little The very first, were they stationary? If you're floating along and, like, bringing food into your little mouth hole, is that kind of stationary? Because you're kind of moving, but you're not really moving of your own No, so... Okay, so uh, the the best uh, nature documentary series that I've ever seen is called The Shape of Life by PBS, and it's from the early 2000s. And they go through animals from our, you know, earliest ancestors. The shape of life. And the big, yeah, the big evolutionary advancements that totally change the way that things acquire their food. So the first things are the stationary asymmetrical predators. So sponges. And then the next thing that evolved from that is radial symmetry. And radial symmetry, um, you their advantages so this is once things started to move around so they were no longer in place they could be round and they could just kind of float about in the environment but they weren't necessarily moving in a particular direction other than up or down so what's a radial predator or a predator that is round in symmetry that just kind of floats around? Uh, maybe the floating starfish no Sea urchins don't float. Well, yeah. So jellyfish so, are uh, not. To- they're not totally um, radially symmetrical. I think. Uh, for the most part, okay. close enough. So if you took a sea star and you lifted it up off of the ground, they're they radial. Are, usually, sim- yeah. They have radial symmetry. Yeah. So sea stars are. They have radial symmetry and they float around and they kind of flop. They're like pulsate pulsers, kind of with yeah. their tentacles. Yeah, and they create this current that sucks in. So the sponges are sucking current in through a tube that they're collectively creating. And then with jellyfish, as they pulsate their little tentacles, they're creating a current that will filter nutrients and food up into their gut, which is on the underside, uh, in the center of their, Mm -hmm. their body. Yeah. So radial symmetry was a huge advancement and coincided with, um, like these multicellular organisms that were actively moving about in their environment. And then the next big evolutionary adaptation or advancement after that was if you're radial, it's hard to move in a specific direction, but if you're bilateral in your symmetry, then you can start to directional. Yeah. In a directional way. So this is, um, worms uh, are a great example of this. so the sort of the early forms of these predatory multicellular organisms were like nematodes and this gave rise to yeah vertebrates and fish from the and, nematode from the humble nematode yeah, modern tetrapods came so much from the humble nematode it's a real nematode yeah. sitting <laughs> on his poopy load sorry it's just the song gets in your head isn't it a it's bit always, like you and me always yeah, relevant is. Yeah. So those are sort of the three basic body plans that uh, organisms get to choose from. So stationary and asymmetrical or radial or bilateral. And then that'll affect how you can hunt in your environment or maybe you could be active or passive in how you hunt. So that's the next step of how you eat is what strategy are you going to use? So you could be lazy like the jellyfish and just kind of flub around (laughs) in your environment. Um, You could be a pack animal uh and follow herds and so sort of be this like mobile itinerant nomadic uh predator that's following your food source around ambush predators like where you sit and wait like a bobcat or a crab spider that'll crab spiders are these tiny little spiders on a bunch of different types of flowers they're easy to find on golden rods but they'll hang out under the flowers and they usually have the same color as the mm. flower and then they will, yeah jump out and ambush their their prey archer fish that's the name of the fish that spits just can't so yeah there i mean there are tons and tons of different strategies besides that so there there are things that like hunt using tools so humans obviously um but there are things like green herons that'll hold things up above the water and attract fish to come in and then they'll go after and green herons do that i've never seen that what do they yeah. hold it with? One talon? Are they up on one talon? No, they'll hold it with their, their beak and then... Their beak and then they'll toss it aside at the last either, Well, one of two things. So I watched this behavior in Santa Barbara when I was working on the coast there doing habitat restoration. And um, this one that I was watching, 
because uh, they have really long, stabby beaks. And yeah. so it seemed like what was happening is it would hold it in its mouth so its beak would be open and then it would actually kind of impale the fish. Not every time, but sometimes it would impale the fish when it lunged its head forward. And so it didn't need to bite down. But other times it would like it seemed like it would drop the stick as it lunged forward and then catch the fish that way. The drop and lunge. Yeah. Blue jays, which I love to hate. Uh, I think I'm always a little impressed by them, but they're horrible, devious little creatures. In the nesting season, they'll go around and make sort of cooing noises like you would make for uh, a baby. And then if there are nests nearby, they don't necessarily know there's a nest nearby. They're just kind of assuming. So they make these noises and then the babies might think it's their mom and they'll start begging for food. Start begging. Oh, and then wow. if they hear that, then they'll go and they'll eat the... It's wrong. Hate the baby. That's the babies. Just... Yeah. If a human's doing that with with human babies, I'm going to say that's not acceptable. No. Yeah, that's a pretty pretty safe statement to make. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's a fairly outrageous behavior if you think about it. Imitating a parent and then eating their babies. Yeah, terrible. I don't want to judge the animal kingdom, but come on, Blue Jays. You can do better. Yeah, so that's an active strategy of eating babies. They're also passive ones, so... Parasites is always, you know, people cringe. And then with predators, it's always like deep anger. Like, how could you do that? You're so cruel. So deer will, if they're just walking along and they come across a nest, like um, goldfinches will nest in sort of wet meadows. No, and they no. nest in a bunch of different thistle. spots. But they usually nest at the top of whatever's grown in an area. So in like a wet meadow, if it's just a small little dogwood shrub and a deer walks by... That's at head height for the deer, and deer will sort of um, harvest facultatively or uh, opportunistically eat baby birds. Still seems better. I mean, you stumble across a baby and eat it is wor- slightly better. It's less than evil. luring, yeah, than making cooing noises. Seems yeah, but you can watch videos online of deer eating eating baby birds, eating baby birds. And one of the interesting things is like with something that's evolved to be a predator they're efficient at dispatching their prey because if you kind of kill something but not immediately that thing is still capable of attacking you and damaging you so there's this annie dillard story about uh weasels and she talks about going out with a biologist friend of hers and they found this hawk and the hawk had a weasel skull that was attached to its throat and still attached still alive no 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 (laughs) it was just the skull so no fur no meat no nothing just the the bone and so and it was still latched on and so they right but the hawk was still alive right the hawk was still alive maybe they found the hawk dead but the hawk had lived well after the weasel had bit onto its neck and so then the story that they surmised from that was that the hawk swooped down went after the weasel the weasel which are incredibly vicious turned around while it was in the talons and bit onto the neck of the hawk and then maybe the hawk scratched at the weasel or something and killed the weasel but their jaws kind of lock in place like the chicken claws that we yeah, referenced yeah. earlier exactly so it clamped talons. down and then it just latched on and so the whole weasel body slowly decomposed away and then left just this skull attached that would make a nice time lapse or like a really cool necklace Kind of a trophy. Do you think it helped that hawk get find a mate to have like a <laughs> weasel like that is so such a healthy hawk that can have a dead weasel dangling from its neck. Yeah, it's yeah. possible. Probably it's possible. would have healthy babies. I'll go yeah. for that one. Hard to know the whole story. Yeah, I've read that one. I I did when I was a teacher. We assigned that to kids. It's a great story. And then I made them draw it. Yeah, cool. I didn't, but maybe I oh. should have. Oh yeah. So the the point of uh, telling that story is just that. Uh, like if you're going after a weasel as your prey which seems like a bad idea after this story i'm going to say yeah maybe you don't want to do that yeah so it's a moral so the deer going after these baby birds baby birds are relatively helpless and so can't really fight back and do much damage to the deer but you always risk being a predator getting physically harmed by the thing that you're eating which is why predators tend to go after things that are smaller than themselves unless you're a pack hunter and then you can safely and efficiently kill something that's larger than you and is this one of the reasons so you see often in the spring maybe all summer see the little songbirds mobbing the hawks and the owls 
seemingly without fear. And usually the hawks and owls will fly away begrudgingly, like, stop bothering me. When you think maybe the hawk could just turn around and, like, take a talon and have another snack, but it's because they're afraid of getting hurt. They don't yeah, want to get hurt. Exactly. They don't want to get messed with. Yeah. And little birds are nimble. Yeah, if you look at um, social interactions within a species, almost everything is based on posturing and, like, scent marking uh, and behavioral displays that prevent you from actually having to... To avoid actual conflict. Yeah, physical altercation. I mean, there are obviously definitely exceptions to this, uh, and they tend to be in species. um, We talked about tournament species earlier, uh, but where there's intense competition between males for access to reproduction. So not every male gets to reproduce. Um, and so then you'll have physical altercations. But even even with those with like sage grouses, where uh, there's it's a male biased population, most of their displays it's like dancing and these weird guttural sounds that they make, um, and they're avoiding physical altercations for the most part. There is some fighting, um, but a lot of the competition happens well in advance of the physical altercation. So when you see the rams like battering each other, there might be a whole lot more posturing and displaying than there actually is like the rams charging at each other and banging heads. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like we should teach this, you know, it should be part of elementary school type curriculum. You have less less playground fights if you could just teach more posturing and <laughs> yeah. instead of having physical ed. Yeah, you just kinda of dance around, puff yourself up, I don't know. Make snarly noises. Yeah, you could tie it in with your your art class where you're making like these uh, elaborate <laughs> self portraits of yourself. Yeah, in yeah. the Halloween costuming. It's yeah. not really as usual with our podcast, just tie, tying itself neatly into a beautiful <laughs> knot. Yeah, the end. Interwoven braid. So there there are a bunch of other strategies that we didn't talk about, but yeah, for for hunting. When you are hunting, like if you have your strategy, say. Yeah, say you're uh, like a sea star or something that's, you know, climbing up uh, the pylons of a pier going after mussels that you're going to be eating. You need a way of being able to find where your food is. And so detection is sort of the last part of the how piece. And so no thing can do all things great. So you have to choose, are you going to be a visual predator? Are you going to be an olfactory predator? An echolocator? An echolocator. My personal favorite. Yeah. I shop at the grocery store with that sometimes. I try. Yeah? Limited success so far. Yeah. <laughs> Do you, are you always just slightly surprised? I just surprised make some clicking noises to, to try to car. find the best fruit. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> it kind of fits again. in with the mask now because I just go for the whole blind facial blindfold and then click around and shop and see what I get. It's fun. Yeah. What's the worst thing you've ever accidentally purchased by echolocating in the <laughs> grocery store? <laughs> Um, yeah, I purchased a bunch of, uh, potted meat food product. I don't know if you know that. It's an actual food. Yeah, I thought it was tuna. It's really hard to tell when it's in a can. Did you say potted? Potted? Have you heard of potted meat food product? No. I just imagined someone putting, like, like slabs of meat in soil. Maybe that's how they make it. It's a thing, though. You can put it in the show notes, but... It is a thing. I think it's got a ring to it. I think any time you end your food with food product, you're not... <laughs> selling actual food. You're not taking the wrong route. Can I ask, before we end it up, you said there's many strategies we didn't talk about. Do you have any one one last favorite strategy or a bizarre one? Yeah, I, um, I guess one of my favorite strategies is uh, a pretty pretty brutal <laughs> uh, strategy. So these are deceivers. And there are a bunch of different names for them, junk bugs, trash bugs. Uh, I think the name that I first encountered them was collector bugs. And what they'll do is when they kill something, they'll take part. So they're these small little insects. And when they kill another insect, they'll take part of the exoskeleton or like a leg or antenna, and then they'll put it onto their body. And so they <laughs> will slowly accumulate this Halloween horrific costume. edifice. It's growing. Wow. Yeah, Frankensteinian. It's not necessarily camouflage, like, because they don't blend in necessarily. Um, but if you were, say, you're an ant and this junk bug was walking towards you and it just had all these ant parts sticking out of it and you couldn't actually <laughs> recognize the junk bug. Oh, what? 
then you would just be like, oh, is that what my heck? cousin Larry? <laughs> <You know? laughs> Larry's not looking so good. But <laughs> yeah. maybe I'll go and say hi. And <laughs> Yeah. Predated. Um, that, that, yeah, once again, I think it could be useful for human hunting. It's, it's possible. So I think that's maybe one of the, you know, I, I'm impressed by all predators and their ability to detect and find and consume food, but uh, <laughs> or the, the trash bug. Yeah, it holds a special place in my I'm now glad I asked that question. Yeah. Trash bug. Yeah. That is going on the Halloween list. Well, I think that probably will will do it for our discussion of uh, predation. Um, And we're going to, again, we'll talk about prey in the next episode. And what this will bleed into is competition, because if you're trying to acquire a food resources, resources are often limited. And so that steps into the territory of where different organisms are competing for a limited resource. And so we'll see how organisms deal with competition coming up. It will literally bleed into that. Yeah, I would say. exactly. Pun intended. Lots of puns in this episode. Nature. Yeah. Red and tooth and claw and other appendages and yeah. <laughs> mouth hole. Great. Well, uh, yeah. Until next time, I'm Professor Wiki. I'm Glenn. And thanks for joining us. Thank you, Teague, as usual. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks for joining us, fellow naturalists. That's part A of our look at predation. Coming up next, we finish our look at exploitation with an investigation into the evolutionary responses of prey to all the nifty adaptations of their predators. And episodes drop every fortnight, so don't forget to subscribe on your favorite podcast app. You can also head over to crowspath.org for your natural history fix, archived episodes, online programming, and lots more. Or become a supporter of the podcast and the awesome work we do at Crow's Path over at patreon.com slash crow's path. Until then, engage your curiosity, discover your world, and we'll see you soon on The Single Acorn.